0: Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard, this is Mind Manifest. Welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast, I'm your host Niall Campbell. Today I sat down with Dr Michael Winlow and Dr Alistair Vickery, the managing and medical directors respectively of Ameria. Ameria is a drug development company based in Perth, which operates a network of clinics across Australia. Its specific focus is on providing clinical care pathways for unmet treatment needs. It's quite a multifaceted company that has pivoted a lot as you will hear in its short history, but it seems to have four main goals as far as I can discern. Number one, to create bespoke clinical care models through their Emerald Clinics. Two, to consolidate and utilise the data from their clinics with a view to either Number three, revealing IP opportunities Or four, facilitating drug development along formal regulatory pathways They came across my radar following a recent announcement that they will be partnering with the University of Western Australia and through this partnership they have secured the rights to over 100 novel MDMA analogues in the university's library So we talk about this project and much more besides in today's episode. In terms of bios, Dr. Michael Winlow has a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery with Honours from the University of Western Australia, as well as an MBA from Stanford University. Prior to Emeria, Michael was CEO at Linear Clinical Research Limited, a company providing clinical trial services for US and Asia-based biotech companies, and he retains directorship at Linear. And prior to Linear, Michael was health lead at Palantir Technologies, which is a big data company based in Silicon Valley. Dr. Alistair Vickery is a specialist medical practitioner. And prior to Emeria, Alistair was an associate professor of primary healthcare at the University of Western Australia and deputy chair of the postgraduate medical council of WA. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And as always, I'll see you on the other side. Thanks very much for joining me, gentlemen. Uh, I'm joined here by Alistair and Michael. And as I've explained, I always do the um, the bios first. <laughs> so There's nothing more excruciating than to <laughs> sit through someone reading out your own bio. Yes. Um, so that's all been covered. Uh, but my first question, which is what I've sort of given you my pod of history, is um, I'd just love to hear what was... You, what has been your initial journey and sort of what piqued your interest about psychedelics and so how, how have you got to be in the position that you're currently in, Michael? And then obviously the same question to yourself, Alistair. Mm.
1: Well, uh, well, I guess, you know, first and foremost, the interest in, uh, you know, Amiria was to try and do a better job of learning from patients who are trying something new, trying new treatments that typically would only be offered through a clinical study. And, and so... Uh, what we were noticing, I guess, through providing access to, in this case, cannabinoid treatments initially, was um, just the diverse range of 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 benefits uh, and and I guess uh, patients that were coming. And uh, it was hard to put all of the perceived benefits down to you know just the medication. There's certainly people are coming in with a lot of hope, a lot of uh, high expectations you know, about things working. I guess the point is clearly there's something more going on than just the drug treatment. Yeah. Uh, we have a very attentive care model, and obviously that play, plays a role as well. Uh, the other thing was we, we we had to get comfortable dealing with a fringe medicine that was kind of on the, it was it mm-hmm. was uh, dealt with some suspicion, some consternation. There wasn't typically the evidence that normally accompanies this 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 treatment as, as this medicine became available to patients, mm-hmm. uh, which is v- very similar to where psychedelics sit in that we've got lots of anecdotal evidence that it might be promising, it's safe in the right hands, but we don't yet have a safe way of giving it to patients. And, uh, uh, and so we, we, we saw a big opportunity to apply our learnings from treating patients with cannabinoid medicines and see whether we can apply the same infrastructure and approach to psychedelic medicines as well. Okay. And so create a safe place where people can try these uh, can, uh, treatments, learn from every patient, During that process, and uh, see we can advance the field and see Mm. where they fit best. So,
0: if I'm if I'm understanding you right, there's (coughs) there's just this concept that there is a signal, but we need to delineate it maybe from the noise, and it's a case of finding out what that construct in that is sets adjacent and in relation to yes. the actual mechanism of action of the substance and then how do we, is it possible? It's, I think that's a very interesting field is how, what are the similarities and differences between cannabinoids and psychedelics and in, mm. you know, incorporating MDMA, which we'll get onto. Um, so that sort of, I'm, I'm very keen, everyone is sort of entering into this space as it standardizes, professionalizes in different ways commodifies. Mm-hmm. I'm, I almost want to take you back a little bit more to maybe scaffold it against your medical career because, mm-hmm. you know, you're saying, well, these were sort of fringe sub- topics, the fringe yeah. substances. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's different now. And I don't know if, you know, medical students or undergrads really fully understand how uh, how much of a career suicide mm-hmm. certain steps might might make. Mm-hmm. There's a coming out process, mm-hmm. which I think is analogous to what happened in to be gay and where we're sat right now in 2021 is very yeah. different than 1971 or whatever yeah. the case is. So maybe take me back long before Amelia, because mm. you have a medical degree, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not too familiar with your, you know, your journey and how has how has how have psychedelics and cannabinoids
1: sort of interplayed? Interesting. That. Yeah. Well, I, I guess as a as, as a medical student, I um, I do remember feeling a little bit uh, underprepared and uh, for, you know, for, for treating patients effectively. So I had a cousin that got very unwell um, with cancer when I was in my fifth year and uh, he, had a, he had a fairly tough time of things ended up passing away after nine weeks and I remember feeling very, very underpowered. I, I didn't want to be just only left with these inadequate tools to try and treat this really complex condition. It felt... Um, I felt like I needed to apply my energies to developing new tools or new treatments and, and try to better what we had, because at, at the time, they all seemed like very crude, you know, imperfect uh, options for, for his serious uh, condition. And so um, I guess that led me to go go exploring, to start getting a little bit, uh, to look a little bit beyond, a little bit around the edges, what else, how else can one participate in healthcare without necessarily being a practitioner? Could one, you know, develop new tools that initially led me to medical devices and then data and then eventually right back to drug development and, mm. and where we are today yeah that's yeah. Fa- fascinating well, i'm sorry for your loss but yeah. um
0: that feeling i think and obviously come love to come on to you also but that feeling of the undergrad or the you know the freshly minted doctor right. feeling that they're turning up at the, at the rubble of an earthquake with a dustpan and brush i think it's probably <laughs> yeah. something which people can relate to that's right and uh and then trying to seek a better a better tool um it's also fascinating that you know at some point you de- you decided to divert a little bit from that cool face, you know, dog acquisition of knowledge and treating people because I think some of the most fascinating people in this space, Peter Attia, I think people like Matthew Walker, Mm -hmm. the the people who are working at that systems level as a doctor, I think that's a fascinating um, juxtaposition and one that I think will become more useful as this because you just need, the wee-wee and the nuts and bolts need to be straddled regardless (laughs) of what your initial training was. So, uh, Alistair, I'd love to know from your perspective, um, and I don't want to date you gentlemen I don't want to date myself But I don't know You weren't in the cl- same class together Were you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no No we were a couple of years yeah, yeah a couple of years
1: apart.
2: Yeah yeah Michael was a, a Final year medical student mm-hmm. When I was heading up a, um, a, a council looking after junior doctors And uh, that's how we first hmm. met About um, Some years ago 15 years ago I suppose <laughs> And um, you know, I had a real interest in the education and and mentoring of of junior doctors and and medical students. I uh, ended up going into academia and um, was working at the university and uh, doing research with big data sets. And um, got curious about how things work. And um, You know a lot of the way that we have researched medicine and and try to find out what works in medicine doesn't work on a practical level and I guess that's from my training as a general practitioner that having randomized controlled trials done in hospital settings doesn't necessarily give you the best answer for the majority of people And so this was a way of marrying those, you know, interests into a single, you know, uh, exploration. And that's how we got started and we started looking at cannabinoids and an unregistered product with a long recreational history and a lot of anecdote and a lot of signal... From people saying this actually makes me feel better, not just in the sense of um, you know uh, the the recreational part, but the medicinal uh, effect. And you know, now having done an enormous amount of research on cannabinoids, we know that it's been used as a medicine for tens of thousands of years um, and predates written history. So it's been used by humans for... The the plant has been used by humans for that long. There must be some pharmacological, you know, um, action that we can harness and work out what works and in whom and when. And a lot of the research up until recently... um, had been with products that you couldn't really tell what it was. And that's how we got into this sort of interest. And I think, you know, the last century, the 20th century, will be known as the war on drugs. And drugs were divided into medications and bad drugs. And I think what we're now starting to discover is that uh, actually none of them have good or bad properties. They uh, are beneficial uh, for some people and some have harms as well and we just need to determine in whom they're beneficial and in whom they cause harms. Mm-hmm.
0: The sort of terminology of drugs, um, you know, and I've heard, I think Sam Harris said this, it's about as useful as saying the term sports. It's like I'm going to play <laughs> sports. Are you going yeah. to get in an octagon and have a... UFC about her go play ping pong you know there is a sort of almost redundant term it really right. doesn't tell us anything um, so the war on drugs is is a war on smoke it's it's not really right. possible to actually action anyway yeah. um, so to go back a little bit about your, your background as a as a GP if we're talking about that and I want to come on to this and this is where I think you guys are in a very interesting position is you know, not this. That's absolutely isolate the variable in a randomised control double blind trial. But nor is it, you know, the corroboration of psychonauts reports. There's this sort of happy, me- well, happy medium or uncanny valley, depending on how you look at it. But your lived experience as a GP, and each GP I speak to is like I am. First and foremost, you know, I cannot go through a day without seeing something where the primary etiology is mental health. So what was your tell me a little bit about your gp practice you know maybe s- separate from the the oversight of, of young, younger doctors like how did that how did mental health show up in your practice
2: well as you say it was uh, it was everybody that humans are extraordinarily complex and uh, don't fit easily into simple boxes and so you know mental health is an important part of your whole health and that whether you're diabetes or asthma or or heart disease interferes with your mental health or vice versa. They're all interconnected, you know, that the mind and the body are one. And I think in general practice, because the range of people that you see, the range of disorder and dis-ease is actually enormous from the very mild, the very sick, and uh, they all interplay with each other. So uh, uh, general practitioners are the the mental health professionals par excellence because everybody they're seeing is affected by um, either those things around them or from within.
0: I think that speaks to your point, uh, Michael, about, you know, the maybe being ne- young doctors needing to be not feeling that they have the requisite tools to deal with these issues. I mm-hmm. think as, as skilled and as experienced in this as GPs are, I wouldn't happily sample randomly. Sa- we could go around here and randomly sample GPs and say, is your box of tricks, you know, sufficient mm. for the mental health challenges that you're seeing on a, on a regular basis? Um, so GPs and anyone who is thinking that whether we like it or not it doesn't matter what people think I believe the medical model psychiatrists are going to quarterback this and the primary sources of referral for mental health related issues if it goes through the PBS or even in private practice is going to be GPs where is the gap in their expertise because I don't know if GPs and psychiatrists are really fully equipped for what is potentially going to come to them like if you could maybe wave a magic wand and say i'm going to integrate training at the level of gp and maybe at the level of medical student Mm. what would you like to see doctors now being taught from the get-go to prepare them for for this potential paradigm shift in treatment of mental health
1: (laughs) I, i don't think it's just as easy as um you know the, the 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 difficulties being a limit of knowledge i think i think gps are quite aware of sort of the issues there's a sensitivity it's more of a structural constraint like an organizational delivery challenge that the health system faces i mean you don't have a lot of time with patients to address all the issues to get to the core things so naturally there's a reductionist you know uh, a sort of a survival yeah exactly uh um approach uh as well and so i think that's where um where there is an interest in, in, in new models of, of, of delivering care that can, be, uh, that can um, uh, create the space to address the underlying issues and, and create time. We're, we're not quite there yet. In some ways, what we're trying to do at Amira is innovate in, in a new way of delivering care. We deliberately take more time with patients to learn what's going on. We pay attention to more features. We, we want to understand their quality of life and how that's changing under a new treatment. In the hope, our big punt is we lose money on the patient transaction. We're not able to uh, get appropriate compensation from the usual channels for that extra time. But the hope is that the insights we gather can help advance the treatments and that we can use, and therefore, you know, we can be part of the system to, um, you know, deliver new treatments and hopefully uh, get the f- ca- capture value from sure. better, better treatments. Yeah.
0: So in a way, it's almost like my question, ostensibly being. Amiria is taking a punt at answering it at the level of the clinic. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: what? We're um, innovating in a, in, a, in a couple of ways. We're trying a new way of, of caring for people because the, yeah, the yeah. care approach we believe will actually lead to better outcomes. Yeah. Because if you do start listening in on the mental health, paying attention to that, yeah. um, irrespective of what the underlying problem is that the per- patient yeah. comes in with, we tend to find through cannabinoids where we actually do make a, a, a decent improvement in their anxiety and their sleep and yeah. these uh, softer features of yeah. their condition but then guess what they get they got more resilient they they you know they get on better with people their their primary problem tends to improve as well yeah. um which <clears throat> uh, is an interesting phenomena in itself but now now the challenge is well what does that mean to somebody huh you've made someone feel better what I is that mean, worth um how, how does one uh you know turn that into a sustainable you know service service uh and our goal is our, our, our current thinking is that those insights will eventually allow us to build better treatments that others can use yeah you know, and we can you know uh generate a return that way
0: so that that brings me on more squarely i suppose to amiria in terms of i'd love to know its history because as i mentioned you gentlemen it, it sort of came onto my radar through the we can get onto that the the new um researcher um affiliation with uwa to test for mdma analogs but i mean that seems to me from doing my i I only found out about the company a few weeks ago but i've done some initial research that is an iteration after after many (laughs) so it would be and i'm i'm really don't have a good handle on Ameria's history its inception and Really, it's it's business model yes, because I think yes. the data farm to the you know to the the generating almost like an atelier of service yes. and then uh, you know monetizing that through, through. I don't know through IP. It's it's hard for me to. I'd love to it's have more of a timeline of Emiria's inception through to to see the, 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 the tax and changes.
1: Yeah, what well, do, do you want to cover the uh, the origin story and I can talk about the. Uh,
2: <laughs> so we started um, really exploring cannabis because there seemed to be a medical signal that suggested that he was a new pharmaceutical product that would make people feel better, <clears throat> you know, improve pain, improve nausea, um, reduce epilepsy, um, reduce mental health strain. And so we created a clinic that enabled us to see people and, um, regular people and uh, without um defining who that would be but rather people who would benefit from uh, uh, medicinal cannabis and then measure the outcomes so we could say who it worked in best and at what dose and that gave us a lot of insights it became clear that that Clinical care model could be applied not just to medicinal cannabis, but to a vast, you know, a, array of new technologies or, or products, mm. and uh, that's where we started to to pivot to say, well, let's look at other models. Mm. What other medications or or products are there that would help people that we, as yet, haven't discovered whether they're effective or not and it's uh, mm-hmm. where we got to the psychedelics
0: and so time just to time stamp that for me you know the beginning of this 20.
1: Ecological model of people coming in and providing clinical yep. care off the basis of cannabis. When a week you've talking? got to sort of set some context. It's sort of uh, twenty eighteen the clinics first got their ideas, but here's um, medicinal cannabis suddenly got descheduled from Schedule Nine to Schedule Eight. A uh, whole bunch of companies got growers' licences. Lots of money flowing into the uh, producers. You know, uh, lots of. Uh, uh, exuberance for the industry, lots of uh, new products turning up, um, patients wanting it, uh, and a lot, of, a lot of reluctance in mainstream medicine to prescribe it, you know, who, what are these medicines? These are illegal drugs. Surely these are, um, you know, they have, have questionable medical value. But, uh, so, so there was this gap. There was, a, there was um, on one hand, producers who weren't typically drug developers or from typical medical backgrounds, quite commonly, Growing, producing, making these, you know, uh, marijuana medicines, uh, with with limited evidence on where they worked, so therefore they worked everywhere. Uh, patients uh, were desperate to try it because you know, many many things weren't working for for usual for, for for many patients. So you had this patient demand build up, uh, lots of uh, excitement in the investment community, um, but a huge reluctance in mainstream medicine to to even you know to give them a go because because these drugs have turned up. Suddenly, suddenly legal without any, without passing any of the usual tests of drugs, and it fixes everything. So, uh, so uh, you know, the, the the founder Stuart and Alastair uh, and Adam uh, recognised that what, what we really need is this sort of moderate. You know, uh, cl- clinical service that has one foot in the mainstream. You know, uh, s- skeptical clinicians uh, providing access to those who really have run out of options. Uh, but let's use the opportunity to learn from every patient and build the evidence. And 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 the initial thinking was surely these producers will will wise up and be deeply interested in the data and where their treatments work best and come and want to partner with us and gain it. You know, work with us to elaborate on those insights and try and find out where their treatments work best and then eventually take them through the full proper clinical trial program to get these drugs registered because registration is a mark of quality safety efficacy for a particular condition it's also the thing you need to get if you want to get reimbursed and have a payer or health insurer pick up the cost of treatment which is the usual course for most medicines so lo and behold we set these clinics up we we brought in clinical trial background people we invested heavily in the data systems we we start to use validated assessments and pay a lot of time with each patient learning where it's working, tracking the adverse events, tracking the doses, tracking what else happens to their medications. We have some of the richest clinical evidence in the world, I would say, on, on these on these high quality products, uh, waiting for the interest to come and, and, and people to come and take an interest in our data. Uh, that didn't happen. And for a year, we we, we struggled along, but just Persevered, and it got to a point where we said, "Right, we we believe in our data. We we are the strongest believers in the merits of registration and taking these drugs forward. Let's let's stop trying to sell data to people who aren't interested in it. Let's uh, let's use it ourselves and develop our own drug development programs. And so, you know, the recent pivot, which I think has helped us get gain momentum, you know, back in the eyes of, what well, we simplify our story, is uh, that now we're able to develop our own treatments." where we we're, we're We're taking you know strategic bets on where these treatments work best, and we know lots of places where they work well. Can we turn these into you know standalone registered treatments, prove that they work for a specific condition, and there may be many conditions that different doses will work for for different things for different people that we can develop those forward we can get them registered yeah so i mean i i that is a very
0: illuminating for me to see. And please stop me if I'm wrong. Almost yeah, to yeah, consolidate yeah. that in my own head, there's just this: okay, boom, schedule changes, right? Media goes bananas, yes. You know, so now it's legal for your doctor to blah blah blah. <laughs> People who are ready to go, it's like, right. oh, you're surprisingly quick to have all of your infrastructure ready to develop, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> develop cannabis. So you've got media need because they're just this hungry big monster political need political need uh, it becomes shrewd people understand it's political football they they understand that there's people there's an antecedent grey market that is going to just legitimise and then all of a sudden and then that gets investors interest and and boom and then all of a sudden there's a yield of data like okay well there's all this energy let's capture that in a sort of empirical way and then let's refine the process and this can get off to the races but lo and behold the entrepreneurs in this it's like, this is sort of why I'm, I have my own bias away from cannabinoids and I'm pretty unencumbered with knowledge because yeah. to try and explain to someone that's like, I don't know if that works or it doesn't right. is, yeah, yeah. Is, is like saying it becomes quite ideological to people yes. or religious yeah. almost. It yeah. has that fervor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you guys pivot towards then. Is it it's almost like a reverse engineering from treatments, from conditions for for where no one in their right mind could stand up and say, we've got this covered. That seems to be the through line of an unmet treatment need for whether it's Parkinson's or autism elements of autism or whether it's uh, PTSD or whatever Mm -hmm. the case is. So I fully appreciate that. I suppose a concern just that comes to me is reverse engineering from a condition to find treatments tethers you to a paradigm of conditions which might not actually be the state of nature. So there's a sort of, you know, if we say, <laughs> let's 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 go through the regulatory process and let's say, okay, we're going to use this, it doesn't matter. Substance X, uh, societally maligned substance X to treat this thing because there's loads of anecdotal evidence. But then that tethers us the consideration that the formulation of the condition in its current instantiation whether it be PTSD is the most effective I'm just using PTSD Mm -hmm. as an example so my concern is that then you're sort of tied to those conditions do you think that I don't know anything really about the more conditions like the more physiological conditions but I don't think I'm convinced that the current way that billing is set up to treat mental health conditions, I think it's driven by insurance rather than the state of nature. So it's a minor concern, but it's a concern nonetheless that mm. this is a different pivot. But are you sort of jumping from the frying pan a bit to the fire to be tethered to the conditions as opposed to entrepreneurs who don't want the data?
2: Well, the patients we see are largely undifferentiated. So they're often... the patients... The, the only differentiation is they have unmet needs they have been having treatment for long periods of time um, you know 60 seventy percent of our patients have had whatever condition they come to see us with for more than five years and 90 percent more than two years and what that means and, and they often have complex conditions. so as we were talking about before there's you know mental health problems and physical problems that are all interrelated with each other. Um, So I'd I'd, I'd argue that we're not saying here is a specific condition and here is the hammer, Um, but rather um, because we're measuring a broad range of outcomes. So we get... Patients to um, respond to questions about their mental health, about their sleep, about their physical function, about their energy levels, about um, you know their depression, anxiety, stress, as well as specific questionnaires about irritable bowel syndrome or epilepsy or chronic pain or whatever. That means we get a, a broad sweep. Of well being yeah. in the patient. And I think that's what al- has allowed us, because we've taken this broad sweep, we've been able to identify specific signals out of those data to be able to say, this is where this product works mm-hmm. best. That's right. um, and then the associated in- clinical indications may actually be quite broad yeah yeah okay so could I I I think that
0: sharpens that up for me because it it, what comes up to me there is that is maybe a particular advantage of the non you know the non-clinical approach because all Mm -hmm. of a sudden people here institutionalized to think along clinical lines that's very useful but then you think people don't exist within their selection criteria and the sort yeah. of test, the the, the, the the cross-pollination of conditions. Each um, has it. Not, it's not like there's, everyone has a little bit of this answer, I think, generally. Yes. So yes. the undifferentiated nature you refer to is people basically walking off the street and then in your capture system, you have someone who says, well, you know, I've, I've rocked up for PTSD, but... I found that my eczema has cleared up and then maybe you yes. can capture data about autoimmune. That's exactly
1: r- the uh, kind of thing we
0: sometimes s- see, yeah. So, so there's, on all but you only stuff.
1: see that if you're paying attention to sure, more sure. than just the, yeah. the exactly. problem so, in front of you. Yeah. So
0: it's the, um, you know, that uh, perception
1: illusion they use, you know, like one D- Just to build on yeah. the comment made before, though, I think what I, what I found interesting uh, is the con- sort of the, the generalizable benefit of something yeah. like cannabinoid therapy sure. across a whole range of different... Ages and primary problems. Yeah. So uh, we, you know, we know if, we know we're probably not treating directly the primary cause of sure. somebody's chronic pain but we are improving sleep and their quality of life and all of a sudden their resilience improves and their relationships improve a little yeah. bit and you do step back and say something's going on this person's getting holistically better. getting better yeah. Yeah. and uh, those around them will agree and they to a point where they wouldn't they want them to keep on this treatment uh, yeah. they may be able to use less of other medications sure. or be less reliant on other interventions so we're making a difference but uh, you know our, our, our medical system isn't completely no. doesn't quite have the language to approach what it is we're doing yeah. and so my favorite anecdote that's really yours Alistair, is you know your your criticism of one of your colleagues saying you only give these drugs because you make people feel better and i'm like why are you right so um so it does open up that different it, it opens up a different l- part of the conversation what is wellness what mm-hmm. is what is healthcare really about um it's uh, it's less reductionist and i guess you know having seen these benefits across a range of patients opens our minds i guess to yeah. new ways of caring for people and yeah, um, if we are making a holistic benefit how does one how does one capture that how does one get recognition for that sure. in a credible way that can be medical you know, mainstream I guess. it's straddling straddling that need to be not unnecessarily
0: like uh, narrow but also to sort of maintain some sort of construct validity in what right. you can then right. and, and the test for that is will things replicate I also That's think right. as an Irishman I'm offended that you stole someone's anecdote and then claimed that you should I, <laughs> <laughs> it's doubly it's doubly enjoyable when you steal someone's anecdote they're sat there and then <laughs> and then you just pass it off as your own. So I'll edit that out and that, right. right. that. <laughs> will <Now> <say laughs> become become your anecdote. Um, so yeah, so that uh, I think that gives some context for, you know, the the principles behind your approach. But then to get a little bit more boots on the ground, we are sat in Leaderville in in Perth, and this is basically seems to be the you know the the central nervous system of Emorya. It's mm-hmm. the place where the data comes, and then it's, there's a team of and you sort of interface with the data, and, and I suppose what I'm doing right now and all different sorts of things. But there are physical walk-in clinics which mm-hmm. are dotted around the country, so it would be great to you know hang what we've talked about off. Joe blogs, you know, maybe give me some profiles of people and what's, what does the patient journey look like for someone with a, an unmet treatment need who goes through the process of an Emerald Clinic?
2: So we we ask all of our patients to involve their treating doctor. Um, okay. Mostly that means GP and about 50% of our referrals come from GPs, yeah. but the other 50% come from specialists who have exhausted their sort of conventional sure. therapy as Mike was discussing, that um, you know, there's a lot of demand, and uh, people want, you know, new cures, new treatments. And uh, so we want to involve the entire care team. And um, I'll often write to four or five different specialists and GPs who are looking after the patients so that we can make sure everybody's on the same page. Patient. And the whole care team are looking after um, each of the individual patients. Because, you know, it takes a whole community to look after as we discuss these complex patients with complex needs and uh, there isn't just one solution it no. is uh, you know uh, important that we are involving everybody in that
0: could you give me uh, and again everybody's different and unique but you have a rich data set there must be some patternicity to different profiles of people who are attending and so just for the listener to get an, you know, anthropomorphise this a little bit, you know, who's walking off the street and who are the people that you're predominantly contacting? Is it psychologists, psychopharmacologists, you know, family members? Like, I'd love to know who that liaison, who's part of that typical care team for for the average Australian come to your clinic?
2: So the the people who come off the street um, are referred by their doctor and um, They'll uh, uh, about seventy percent of the people we see see have chronic pain as their primary presentation. Right. Um, about fifteen uh, percent have um, mental health problems, including anxiety and insomnia and PTSD. Um, about ten percent uh, have cancer and symptoms associated with the cancer, whether it's pain or nausea from the treatments they're getting or even just anxiety from having a life-threatening illness Um, and then uh, another five or six percent is neurological disorders like parkinson's you mentioned before uh, restless leg syndrome um uh multiple sclerosis uh, so we treat many of those um, those conditions as well and then we've had more recently some interest in autism so kids particularly with nonverbal yes. autism who have probably
0: comorbid with no, i shouldn't say yeah. comorbid but with some syndromic and then an autistic overlay as i've sort of, yeah okay
2: and um, irritable bowel syndrome and and inflammatory bowel syndrome and and a, you know about uh, Forty or fifty different health conditions, um, but as, as we've discussed, many of them tick a lot of those boxes. You know, so they, no, I don't just have that one. I have all these five things. Yeah, yeah. But because of our medical model, they often present with their first, their presentation.
0: That, that's they have to put something on the yeah. line almost. That's mm. the, so
2: they spend an, they spend about an hour and a half with us. At first, assessed by our nurses and then assessed by our, our, our clinicians, um, and that's where we tease out all of the comorbidities, you know, those other parts of their journey. Um, they do a whole lot of um, baseline uh, testing and baseline questionnaires to see where they are on the scale for uh, all of those things we talked about, mental health and sleep and pain and, and symptoms, um, and then we'll see them um, every month um, for about six months um, and every two months after that. Okay. So, so it's pretty intense care, um, and we spend time... Trying to get the best outcome. One,
0: one thing that, um, two things I'd like to pick up on, <clears throat> just that, that when you when you talk about the in, in, sort of intensity and the consistency of the care, is I'm almost anticipating things where people are going to say, "Oh no, this, that, and the other." Because one will be the placebo, but the best characterisation of the placebo I've ever heard was by the chap Ted Kapchuk, who did the work at I think Harvard. Where he did the placebo, told it was the placebo. People kept coming back afterwards saying, <laughs> it was, I think, it was for ABS. And yeah. I think it was he who said, it, the placebo is nothing more than the biological response to care, which I think means you don't have to leave the, the downtown area of mm-hmm. materialism, mm-hmm. scientific materialism. But it, it, as, as an explanatory statement, I think it nests that back. So, because I do believe that that level of care. And doing a battery, of been my experience of doing a battery of psychometric tests with people, regardless what the score comes back with, can often infer to them, we are trying to actually nut out what is going on with you, and you're going to be empowered to fill this out. So I actually stopped filling out them with people and sending them home, which was just because I thought, well, if I can leverage well, a certain amount of placebo, when they come back, and maybe you get a noise in the signal because the data isn't, you know, it's mm-hmm. not as severe, but as you say, ultimately we're trying to help people to get better not not generate data in the uh, chat so that is interesting to hear that they go one month and then Mm. and then after that they're on what happens is there like a yearly review or how how do you how do you then come back to that big battery of baseline information
2: so the the testing that we do the the patient reported outcomes that we measure um we do on a regular basis yeah so we do that longitudinally over time. So they may do those questionnaires uh, five or six times in a 12-month space. Yeah, uh, We've only been open for two years. Ah, yes, yeah. so so you're talking to us. I don't long have any long-term long data yeah. beyond that. Yeah. Um, but I have seen, you know, because I was the first clinician seeing patients, I've seen patients for coming back, you know, who were amongst our first, you know, that... Um, each one has a study number. So I've seen patient four and six in the last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also saw a new patient who was patient 5072. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> very good, Making
0: very good. Purpose. Well, patient four and six and 5072, if you're listening, I hope you're doing well. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's right. um, you make a good point, though. We, 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 when we try to quantify like, the impact we're having, sure. we're, we, we are careful to describe It's the care model. We, we do, we don't, Underestimate the impact that our, our sure. attentive doctors are having on them, but in some cases the signal's so strong that there's likely, you know, an independent drug effect, and they become the opportunities for us to develop those into into treatments. Mm-hmm. And we think that if there is truly a benefit here in the drug therapy alone, it is the considerate thing to do to to run that through the proper evaluations. So that comes yeah. next. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But, but there is. We we do talk internally about you know is there is there a role for us to 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 package the care program in itself, including the questionnaires, the clinician time, and and and, and who's interested in in the benefits we're delivering in that combination? Can we, you know, in some ways it's, it doesn't matter that we're using cannabinoids; we're getting outcomes, uh, and uh, you know, I, I think there's an argument that we can, you know, get get payers and other groups interested in,
0: yeah, in that. Abso- yeah, absolutely. So to come on to... to um, I can't ever say the word pivot without thinking of Ross from <laughs> Friends <Thank laughs> so, but to pivot mm-hmm. to um, maybe moving away from cannabinoids and, and this clinical care model, which has been sort of up and running for two years. So as I mentioned, you guys came on my radar with the announcement of the... <clears throat> I don't know what the best word is. Affiliation agreement between yourselves, a research agreement between yourselves mm-hmm. and U- University of Western Australia and Matthew Piggott, is that his second name? Uh, he's um, a chemist, I suppose. He's medicinal chemist. Medicinal chemist who has a long background in uh, in working with analogues of MDMA. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about how this has come to pass and, and where you guys are at in your sort of uh, investigation of MDMA.
1: Mm. Well, um, we... We are aware that there, are, there is currently actively a uh, case in front of the TJ to reschedule MDMA yeah. and psilocybin for PTSD and major depressive disorder, uh, respectively. Uh, that is an analogous change that happened to cannabis going from Schedule 9, a prohibitive illegal drug, to Schedule 8. Uh, and so that's under consideration by the TJ currently and uh, there's actually an international committee giving an independent opinion on this rescheduling at the end of this month uh, which we've been anticipating for some time mm-hmm. and so we have a very similar situation to medicinal cannabis here's a promising therapy safe in the right environment uh, very little evidence you know, practical evidence on, on who be- be benefits best and how to deliver this treatment safely at scale uh, there's a need for clinical infrastructure for Careful, you know, evidence gathering and uh, and um, curiosity into yeah. where and how to how to you know, apply these therapies, and so we we had a lot of those skills and infrastructure given our experience in cannabinoids, and so formed a partnership with a group who was training therapists and, and preparing uh, to deliver Australia? Mind yeah. Medicine yeah. Australia, that's right, because uh, we had the clinics, we had sort of the data systems, we didn't necessarily have the trained therapists, mm-hmm. and so that was a key piece we needed, and so we started to think, right, well. It seems inevitable. These therapies, given the state of mental health, given the open, you know, the increasing interest in where psychedelics may play a role, seems inevitable. These treatments will become more and more accessible. Uh, And so, you know, how how do how can we prepare ourselves to to participate in that Mm -hmm. and actually do what we do best, which is give patients safe access to these promising treatments where nothing else is working, and Mm -hmm. learn from those from those patients. Um, So, our interest was in MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. Mm -hmm. We focused on there because the the, the quality of the clinical trial evidence behind MDMA's benefit on PTSD was very, very profound. Yes. And there's a recent study uh, in Nature released May this year showing tremendous outcomes for, for patients under a certain program. And so MDMA had tr- huge promise. Uh, and, and so uh, we've always been preparing to do a study in M- straight MDMA, standard MDMA. Mm-hmm. And through that interest, we became aware of Matt Pickett's work uh, okay. which started uh, looking at MDMA directly at UWA for yeah. Parkinson's disease yeah. because of the anecdotal evidence that sure. it was help, helpful for, for uh, symptom treatment or at mm-hmm. least reduced side effects of the common treatment of yeah. Parkinson's. And so in that exploration, suddenly discovered this guy's been sitting on this tremendous uh, library of MDMA analogues. He's diligently thought of clever ways that one can redesign these molecules to elicit different kinds of neurological effects to kind of maximize the Parkinson's, optimize the the anti-Parkinson's benefit Mm -hmm. where you want a nice, even to get technical from it, dopamine and serotonin effect, but you may not want the euphoria Mm -hmm. or the activation that standard MDMA can give. Mm -hmm. So those qualities which make MDMA a good therapy for psychotherapy, uh, psychotherapy assisted treatment for PTSD, not necessarily the qualities you might want as a as your as your go-to parkinson's treatment sure, uh, yeah, a, yeah. as a daily medication so um what what he had and what the impressed guys us. before you take it <laughs> yeah that's it maybe for some people um yeah. it's all about the dose and context of yeah, course but yeah. um what intrigued us about matt's work is that he had this deep knowledge of how to change these molecules and try and get different kinds of responses which got us very interested in not only the applications for things like Parkinson's disease, where we think with a, with some concerted drug development experience, we might be able to progress some of these molecules from the lab to actually mm-hmm. to the patient, but also the opportunity to create, you know, novel uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies with the hope being that we can expand the amount, the number of patients that could, uh, you know, get access to that treatment.
0: Okay, so the, <clears throat> let me say, I've got this straight, there's, there's a chap who has been... <laughs> Almost like a sort of Sasha Shulgin has just been playing right. around with these. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and anyway, I'm saying this is it's fascinating work, and I hopefully actually interview Matthew, so there's no. Great, uh, I'm just very keen to hear what he has to say about you know how he uh, he seems to be working in parallel to a lot of this actually happening, mm-hmm. and what was his drive, what was his sort of scientific curiosity that led to uh, nobody tweaks to tweak. You know, there's there's a there's a there's mm-hmm. sort of probably a rationale emerging. So he has all these different iterations, analogues mm-hmm. of, of, of these, this substance. This is happening in parallel to you guys, ostensibly setting up a clinical care model, which rinses and repeats potentially for mm-hmm. other substances and in right. a similar category that have been you know, politically and societally maligned, and then there's no research being done on them, so they don't have their place in the pantheon of treatments yep. as a result. You guys come together... And then Mind Medicine Australia here pushing more, I suppose, they're, they're the maps of Australia in many ways, a charity that is then trying to um, take a model of care and train psychotherapists in <coughs> anticipation for the regulation. So there's a sort of an inevitable convergence of those three areas, yeah. the, the, the scientists, the, um, the therapists, and then the, you know, the, the doctors, I suppose, the clinicians. Yes. So I suppose a concern, and I don't know how valid this is, is because MDMA is off-patent, I know people will be thinking, oh, they're just trying to patent that so they can seal up a monopoly and have the intellectual property on something that is vague, like very slightly different, but circumnavigates uh, mm-hmm. the free market competition. So put me at ease. Tell me how that is not
1: <laughs> happening. <laughs> I, I well, don't know. It's, it's, um, as you're aware, MDMA can't be patented. Yeah, uh, That doesn't mean you can't get... Uh, different kinds of protections for maybe new ways Locking. of manufacturing MDMA, yeah. or maybe new indications where it's not obvious, and you've yeah. discovered a it's very effective for X condition that no one was really yeah. looking at. Uh, you can get some uh, what's called a method of use, like a new way of applying the drug to a novel treatment. So those those uh, opportunities are still out there, really. Um, what uh, what one needs though, I guess, to in order to attract you know the right amount of resources behind either the formal drug development journey which Mm -hmm. for us for these analogs starts at day zero which is a chemical you know in a lab that still needs to be manufactured purified uh vetted through animal studies eventually human studies as well if we're talking about say a new treatment for parkinson's disease it's a long and incredibly expensive journey and there's not Mm -hmm. really any great way to shortcut that or, uh, or or make it cheaper to be honest until we've done all those safety evaluations which are expensive so um we do want to, uh, you know, it is important to be able to find, uh, you know, novel ground there that we can protect for some of these treatments in order to get the resourcing behind to do the proper proper yeah. trials. But, you know, we're talking about two different approaches here. We have we have a program which is the MDMA assisted therapy, right. which, which uh, yes, there won't be a patent on that. There are some open questions which we hope to help answer, which is how can someone give this scalably safely. Repeatedly, yeah. logistically, how is that going? Logistically, to a lot of attention has been on the psychedelic compound itself, whereas more than half the effort, I think, needs to be in how to wrap it into a clinical service, to deliver it safely, and get the support of the referring professional, yeah. medical practitioners who need to, you know, be, be on board as well. So, um, actually, the clinical delivery has got some really interesting uh, challenges behind it. That's something mm-hmm. we hope to, you know, figure out through our trials and through the partnerships and and get that working. But on the same to- token we know these compounds uh, lend themselves to being very promising uh, treatments for other neurological conditions yes. and possibly even give a slightly different psychedelic benefit that could you know, improve the treatment of other conditions. And mm-hmm. and so on that quest, uh, that's why we're going through this you know, evaluation of the library through that. There will be novel compounds, I think, that could yeah. be patented and then commercialized.
0: Well, I suppose I, I ask because I, my experience of coming into the psychedelic space is that <laughs> I was at a breaking convention a few years ago and um, you know, I was sat between a venture capitalist and a druid. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. that a be
1: an in Irish joke?
0: There's, 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 yeah, there's a, a druid, a druid, a venture capitalist and an Irishman walking into a bar. Um, uh, the drinks are on you, venture yeah, capitalist, yeah. and he doesn't, he, um, he'll only have an ayahuasca. Um, um, but uh, yeah, so there's just this such, a broad scope of differing opinions, ranging from Mm -hmm. hardcore capitalism, commodify everything all the way through to Rousseau-esque, let's all go back to nature, you know. And everyone has a a place in this pie. So my goal is, I suppose my little goal is to introduce as many different types of people because nobody has all the answers. Mm -hmm. So I do understand that if governments aren't opening the coffers, these things don't scale for free. And maybe nor should they. Uh, And I am also concerned if there are too many, you know, really heavy-hitting philanthropists who, um, at first, they're like, oh, well, thank you, you know, any port in a storm. But then you think, well, then there's a very narrow number of people controlling the narrative. But I am also concerned about, at this stage, the word that comes, I keep coming back to, is atelier. That word from fashion, where it's like that's the fashion house. None of us are going to wear that. Alexander McQueen is going to design that in some Parisian mm-hmm. hot cuisine, you know, haute fashion. But it is going to inform the high street. So I don't know if we're at the stage yet where we can we can fully accept that shareholders get to determine things which were initially arbitrary and then need to be tested. So my concern is, you come up with a clinical care model and. It doesn't track with shareholders, but the evidence says that it needs to be subtly different. Mm -hmm. My concern is that in the same way as the heavy-hitting philanthropist is saying, no, you're either funding this or you're not funding that at all. Mm -hmm. Even just because that responsibility is diffused doesn't necessarily mean that the narrative isn't being driven in some direction. Mm -hmm. So that is a big, long, bumbling preamble to show that I'm not just sort of anti-capitalist, but I am concerned if shareholders come into the party too soon. That they then start to dictate a narrative that isn't always in alignment with the science mm-hmm. so what what, what what would you speak to that on
1: yeah i i, I think you know cannabis in the early days where we are uh, we are well below the highs of like a few years ago yeah. where all the shareholders rush in they're exuberant i mean what they do bring they bring capital they bring um to people who are naive and ignorant and they try a lot of things and they've got money and resources to burn and so we do we do eventually that's like cannabis 1.0 and eventually we settle to where 2.0 is and so uh i think now we're starting to mature and there's a divergence there's a rec market there's a true pharmaceutical market you know as well kind of diverging psychedelics we're in the early stage we're in the hype cycle we're going to have to come you know some way of you know make making progress through that and um you know we we keep coming back to sort of the reason our regulators are there uh they set a very high bar they they in in order to win the endorsement of a of a regulator yes. one needs to commit you know significant resources to demonstrate uh unequivocally the benefit and safety of a particular approach to treatment or care the regulators are there to keep patients safe mm-hmm. and so they set this very high bar and so um uh we think it's the considerate thing to do to try and get through those hurdles because on the other side of that you've suddenly earned the credibility of you know the medical profession and you're able to reach a much larger patient pool if you stay as like a niche service for just the committed and the believers who who who, who, you're um you're you're uh, or the wealthy or the wealthy that's right you're actually in a much smaller pool and so we, we, yeah. we, we, we see this happening in cannabis where we, we look at the numbers of scripts that get written every month and the, the industry congratulates itself for having surpassed 10,000 special access approvals in in a month. A uh, 70% thing. of compassion access approvals are for cannabis nowadays. So it's basically the cannabis access scheme, no longer the special access scheme. But uh, that is a drop in the ocean if you look at the number of prescriptions written for antidepressants every month, more than 2 million in Australia. So, you know, we're a long way to go for this to actually. If if people are truly believing that this is a, a real therapy with real clinical benefit for patients, then the considerate thing to do is to put the investment into because
0: getting of the it regulated. Process. That's right,
1: yeah, And so I think, but 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 that that hurdle requires significant capital, uh, a certain kind of expertise. Um, you know, a tolerance for risk. Sure. You know, and and so, the, so often those those risks are best borne by by investment capital. Yeah. Often, uh, to be frank, because the because the risk is high, but the reward is high on the sure. other side. And I think, you know, I think we we, we kind of sit with with this view that um, as long as as long as those sort of barriers exist uh, and need to be crossed and require such effort and cost. Um, There needs to be the commercial imperative i suppose to get through that i mean
0: i i I just generally i think that if people want this to be on the pbs somebody has to not has to but invariably somebody has to make a lot of money for that to happen and we see that with other products where the first cd player my dad bought was 300 pounds and it was shit Right. yeah (laughs) But you know, it, it, it was so, so. There's that the first Tesla was For, the, exactly, uh, and the
1: Roadster, the, yeah. and then it became. Then you can democratize. <laughs> I, suppose,
0: your I, supo- yeah. I suppose my concern to use that metaf- uh, metaphor of Tesla is if it transpired that Elon Musk, you know, in his sort of swashbuckling way, right. uh, had jettisoned in some um, some legislation or had created there was some regulatory, the you know the, the electric car regulatory body, the ECRB or something, mm. and it was like, okay, and then Nissan are late to the party and they're like, okay, we're going to put the Leaf out. And it's like, we can't put the fucking Leaf out. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> or we can't, Jaguar's like, we can't get rich douchebags to buy a $300. We can't make that because Elon Musk has wrapped everything up at some point. So that's the uh, a sort of, that's the concern, is yep. that this is an absolutely necessary, in the way I think, the medical model is going to be the way that this maps onto in any sort of modal way. That's right. And also the way that this gets funded and the the costs Mm -hmm. for this come down is through venture capital. Mm -hmm. But my concern is that then things will get shunted in that then once that opens up, there isn't that capacity for the free market to properly compete and drive down costs while driving up. So I could be completely wrong in that concern. It might be mist that burns away as it goes through, but
1: what do you, what do you guys think of, of that uh, there's probably a lot to react to your question maybe the first the first thing I'll say um, which may, may, may we may wish to re- revisit is alternative models of say regulating cannabis for example, because it's a good analogy to look at around the world. Uh, we've tried some other experiments in Canada, in the US, where um, they've done alternative regulatory agencies, set them up to approve cannabis. And, you know, cannabis has been used widely in, in Canada for you know for, for many years, longer than Australia. But still we've got a point where only, what is it, 5%, 10% of GPs prescribe it. Um, there's still a huge amount of scepticism out there despite it being, uh, say, more readily available, if you will. So um, uh, I don't think we necessarily get closer to Uh, you know, um, adoption or appropriate use of something if we make it easier to get hold of. That's that's one thing, and there may be more to say about that, but I think the other thing is we don't yet know how to, what commercial models might serve, say, the psychedelic-assisted therapies appropriately. Um, The drug itself is not necessarily that expensive to make, but all the people time to provide the psychotherapy and the Preparation, integration sessions are very, very expensive. Uh, and so it's not clear yet how to bundle all of that activity and expense. Um, we know we can have profound health benefits for somebody, but payers aren't equipped to, you know, pay $100,000 now to save $500,000 over five years. Um, so we have, you know, but but I'm optimistic that we can figure this out and that with enough sort of energy and interest and, and effort, um, you know, we... we I guess the, we 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 may not have the right uh commercialization model to look at as our comparator now you know we might we have to allow ourselves that something new might surprise us, and that might be the way we we make progress i think, I
0: think you make uh, that's an interesting point' i'd love to hear your thoughts on the Alistair, in terms of what i don't necessarily think it's factored in if it does come to down to you know differing competing models which i mm-hmm. think is natural and good yeah. as long as there isn't Monopoly. That's the word I'm trying to just avoid is monopoly. I don't want to see any monopolies because nobody has all the answers. What the price points might need to be informed by an awareness of, of just the profound opportunity cost of mental illness mm-hmm. at the familial, societal level. Because we see these numbers and I think they, they lack they lack any real emotional potency. But I believe that we have a job to do as, as health professionals to explain to people on the other side of this not in the early adoption or the, you know the venture capitalist phase but whenever it's like like my dad's cd player cost 300 but it wasn't cheap straight away there's going to be a phase when it's mm-hmm. like this is worth it so how do we approach the australian public and say these without sounding evangelical these substances are worth it and you know how do we do that
2: Yeah, the mistake I made early on when we started talking about psychedelics was thinking they were the treatment. And they're not. Um, They're relatively cheap to make chemicals, um, psilocybin, LSD, um, uh, MDMA, um, which allow the therapy to work more effectively. And so we know that, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people are attending psychologists, but maybe their brains are not in a a state to allow them to change their psychology. And that's the promise of of psychedelic-assisted therapy, that by taking a psychedelic, it prepares or opens the brain, the, the psychology To deeper thinking, to deeper change, to structural change that allows a more effective and longer lasting treatment. Mm -hmm. And that was new to me. Yeah. That, you know, the current medical model is you come to me, you say you're depressed, I give you antidepressants. And that means you continue to take them. Indefinitely, indefinitely. Like, whilst that one burns off, and <clears throat> <we> use, <laughs> Johann Hari talks about that yeah. in Lost Connections. That he yeah. talks about, you know, the fact that he was put on antidepressants and stayed on them for twenty years before yeah. he realised they weren't doing anything. Mm-hmm. And that model is, you know, sits with all of our chronic disease. Yeah. And the promise of, you know, the big trial that's done in the US just recently with MDMA. Yeah suggests that this assisted therapy so the the psychological therapy given while you're uh, under the influence of Mm. mdma for a period of about eight hours enables you to change your way of thinking and change the the set pathways in your brain and those connections that would may actually lead to cure yeah and that is very exciting mm. that's a totally different way of looking at mental health
0: it's a very different paradigm the and I, what 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 brings to my mind is to, to pick up on what you had said about you know michael about precedence and, and working with cannabinoids. there is a, a sort of subtle but i think in, a particularly important difference between say when we shift from cannabinoids to the, the phenomenological substances is that all of a sudden the FDA is in a position where it's having to, to for the first, it's a Food and Drug Administration, but because of this, I don't know how to describe it. This yin yang relationship between the, the 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 molecule and the and the the uh, therapist, or the therapy, all of a sudden they find themselves going. Well, we're we're having to basically ratify a therapeutic approach, mm-hmm. and this facilitatory component of the psychedelics, and I think, is very is very important. But then just, and I'm conscious of our time, but I want to really drill down on that to say that TGA, which is the, the the Australian equivalent of the FDA, is probably going to find itself in a position where it's going to have to sign off on a hard science substance, a 5-HT2A receptor, you know, Matthew Pickett's gonna put his thing in, and da 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 and that's the material world. And then all of a sudden, and that's qualitative and that's objective, uh, quantitative and objective, and then there's going to have to be a sign off on some sort of therapeutic modality. Now, I take your point that, you know, you put someone in a room, we have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people taking MDMA every weekend in uh, in, the UK. You don't just see the sort of spontaneous disappearance of treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress Mm. (laughs) result. Mm. So that's not enough. Clearly, it's not enough, but this thats not the treatment. No, Mm. but my issue is when it comes to the set and setting is very important, but I'm concerned that there will be a, the, t- the type and nature of ratification that is appropriate for an analogue that M- Matthew Piggott might produce or MDMA itself, the same type of analysis from, a company, from an institution that only has that paradigm to assess things is going to map itself onto something where it's maybe not super appropriate. And I want to see the different therapeutic modalities compete, yes. so to speak, because therapists, and I've said this to Stephen Bright, therapists are often married to their modality. <laughs> you know, so I'm concerned about an un- a sort of unconscious professional level bias, yes. circumscribing something that is prematurely prematurely yes. so. Yeah. That that that's where
1: our model and experience with cannabis might be rather interesting, because we, unlike clinical trials, we're not uh, prescribing a protocol. And so our clinicians are free to follow their professional uh, exercise, their professional rights, try different drugs, try different dose forms, uh, adjust things up or down. We have some clinicians who have a particular preference for one type of treatment and others have not. And through the review of the data, we can see whether those differences uh, have an impact or not. And so uh, that's why if we can, you know, if we can do a better job learning from the experience of every patient, set that infrastructure up first, measure things about the, the care experience in this case that we can adjust and, and play with. And so a simple thing might be the length of treatment. Uh, there are many rules of thumb that are in psychedelic assisted therapy, like the need for eye shades and classical music. And so most people stick to those uh, within, within those safe, the, you know, what's been done before. But why not create an environment where you can try something else, uh, try different music, try different therapy le- uh, lengths, as long as you're measuring what you're doing and you're tracking what's going on, you might learn something. And so uh, this really gets back to sort of, you know, why MIRI exists is to try to get better at learning from the delivery of care. Trials are very good at getting data. They, they optimize data capture against care delivery. The health service, we all know, does health service delivery well, but it's not optimized for getting data or evidence. Um, uh, we, you know, our, our largest children's hospital is all on paper. <laughs> so, you know, there's no control F search function uh, that th- th- you can do it easily there. So if we can, you know, bring some of the the best of the trial world into our care, care world, we might, you know, I think we can make more rapid progress, I guess is the is the key here and start to explore all those, those questions that you have. Yeah,
0: I think mm-hmm. uh, um, that the clinical care model seems to be a hybrid of the two of, you know, cold face treatment which you're right. both as doctors more than familiar with and then the sort of isolation of a very specific variable to to find yeah, out information yeah. so again i think there's a place for all three and i mm. think temperament competency will probably determine mm. so i hope that stimulates people that there's yeah. plenty of places to go
1: and i think just like, a i like yeah, up to add to that is yeah. and something we say to ourselves is <clears throat> in the early days uh, there was a lot of comment uh, a lot of the narratives around patient access to yeah. cannabis yeah yeah but really we, we push back against that. We say patients don't want access to a drug. You don't want access to Viagra. You want to get better. You want some. So so we, we'd have to sh- try and push the narrative back to patients want to get well, and 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 whether they whether that involves cannabis or not, is is really not. It's not the means. It's not the uh, not the primary goal. It's to get them better. And so I think we take the same attitude to psychedelics as they emerge. Will. You know, we
0: can't, can't go wrong. Uh, yeah, a, book, a book I really love about a psychiatrist actually is Ian McGillchrist's The Master and His Emissary, and he always talks about the betweenness of things. And I think that's a really important right. yeah. concept for how all this fits together. And just on my last sort of little question and, and keep me uh, posted on what's happening. The TGA that was, was given, there was a recommendation that it be changed from Schedule 9 to 8. Mm-hmm. And I can put the equivalencies between that in America, the FDA categories. On the show notes but there was an interim decision made we are now um recording you know in september <laughs> early september you, you mentioned there was a review coming up what was amiria's position on that because i know and i can link to these as well so people can have the full gambit mm-hmm. of approach mm-hmm. there was prism um but i uh, stephen brighton uh martin williams uh, put out something saying they felt it was premature, mm-hmm. uh, because it hadn't been through phase three, mm-hmm. and there wasn't going to be. I think their main thrust was there wasn't going to be the therapeutic support to, to catch all this if it happened. Um, I obviously know yeah. that Mind Medicine Australia, um, Peter Hunt, I think, put out something in refuting that through prism. I'm, I don't know what Amiri's position on the the uh, request to to move from schedule nine to eight. I,
1: when it was made, what is Amory's position on, on that? We, we were we were comfortable with the proposal to shift from nine to eight, yeah. because we had the the real world experience of managing cannabinoids in the same way. But we were very clear that this can be done safely if you have the right kind of infrastructure around. You can't just shift it and um, you know expect things to to sort of work out. There is, there, is a, there is a value in having a service like Amiria who's there to provide safe access, but learn from the patients who are going yeah. through treatment. And that was the key thing. So we, we put forward our model as an example actually of, of what we're able to do in the cannabinoid space after the shift from nine to eight. The shift from nine to eight happened. There was no registered drug in Australia. Mm-hmm. All the treatments were unregistered. The same, the same will happen if, if uh, the TJ shifts from nine to eight for MDMA. That's simply a regulatory shift. It's simply a, a change of posture against the drug, the drug treatment. There is no registered MDMA or psilocybin. Available. that will suddenly be prescribable. Yeah. It will all be still compassionate access or available through um, clinical trials only. But we wanted to put forward our model to say these shifts can happen. You can be confident. There are better ways of learning from patients. There are ways that you can give patients in need access to these treatments earlier right. and generate knowledge at the same time. You don't have to do one or the other. Yeah, it's not an ether article found. That's right. And I think, you know, my my pushback to maybe Prism was they're perhaps less familiar with our kinds of models of collecting reward evidence, investing in patients, taking time, building the data infrastructure and the analytical capabilities to learn from patients as you go. Mm -hmm. Uh, And obviously having clinicians guide everything you do so you can keep Mm -hmm. people safe and you can learn from them. at the same time you're giving them something that they wouldn't have access to before and hopefully making a difference to their lives which is really the goal Um, but you're also advancing the field at the same time
0: Mm. yeah Uh, I think one of the things which um, I'm very keen for totally random people to come into this space because they'll bring certain silos of expertise but dealing with non-ordinary states if I went to any small town or even Perth there are people within 500 yards of here, because we're in Leaderville at the minute, and they more regularly deal with non-ordinary states of consciousness than the two doctors here, psychotherapists out here, any of the clinical psychologists, and that is bouncers. <laughs> you know, so uh, for emergency physicians do, uh, paramedics do, priests and, you know, people in the clergy do, mm-hmm. hypnotherapists do. Um, you know, there are a whole scope of different people who deal with people in, you know, non-ordinary states of consciousness. And I think, us having a full understanding of what any of these substances are are capable of, I think is very important. So one thing I've potentially been doing is hopefully speaking to some underground therapist in the future, mm. and then we'll disguise their voice because I, there are people in our community yeah. who are doing this. And I just, I'd, I'd love to give them a platform to speak where they mm. feel comfortable because we all have a little piece of the information about what these substances, what the risks and rewards are with these substances. And I think it's really important we just listen yeah. to each other. Yeah. Um, Gentlemen, if people are keen to connect with amiria you know, there will be some interest from, you know, I think people who are interested in this space and this sort of model might fit with them. Mm. How, how, where would you direct people to if they're curious to find more about amiria and, and your own work?
1: Well, yeah. we have we have a website, E M mm. Y R I A dot mm. com. Uh, we can find broadly about our company, but sure. uh, if you're a patient interested in accessing our clinics, mm-hmm. uh, our clinical services, EmeraldClinics dot com. Mm. We have sites around Australia. You can go to EmeraldClinics to to find more there, uh, or speak to your, your 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 treating GP or specialist uh, about uh, possibly considering medicinal cannabis. Cool. Yeah. And
0: gentlemen, what? Um I have a question I'm starting to ask everyone is mm-hmm. uh, what what keep when it comes to the psychedelics and the psychedelic space and all of this, what keeps you awake at night and, some, and conversely what gets you up in the morning? So what are you most worried about and most excited about in this space?
2: I worry about that tension between the therapeutic effect and the pharmacological effect that you talked about before. Um... Because it's hard to tease apart yes. what is quality care, providing solace and 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 help to people, versus the pharmacological agent and how it's changing the neurochemistry or, or the cellular signalling. And when we think about those things, you know, it, harking back to that anecdote that we're making people feel better. And that's all that <laughs> <it> counts.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what about you? Uh, right. Absolutely true. I think um, we, we're all tremendously motivated. The re- reason why we're stuck with this is we, we do see the changes that happen in patients' lives, and, and that uh, we know our doctors are energised by the, me- the type of medicine they get to practice with us. So uh, that's really, really encouraging. I love the fact that we're pushing the edge a little bit. We, we're able to have one foot in mainstream medicine, one foot in the new world, and try to uh, try to link those two and, and you know, draw out the benefit you know, from, from, from one area to that and, and bring it to, the, to, to mainstream, um, keeps me up. I think uh, just that there is so many opportunities and like multiple lifetimes of, of work ahead of us. And I guess uh, just knowing which path to pick. I mean, um, uh, the psychedelics alone, there are you know, so many uh, promising areas to, to go exploring. And so uh, just making sure we stay focused enough so that we can make meaningful progress. Uh, yeah, it's probably the paradox of choice. Yeah, paradox of choice. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, great time to be alive. I think, you know, the world is uh, is really open. You know, in the last twelve months, opened its mind to new ways of approaching mental health. I think we're in the right place at the right time, and that's incredibly exciting. Yeah, I,
0: I yeah. tend to agree, and I think I'm overly generally a little bit more optimistic than I used to be in the past about mm-hmm. this. So I think. It's a case of which of those beasts we feed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, listen, gentlemen, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thanks a lot. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And in future, I'll hopefully be speaking to Alistair and Michael again, and we will potentially speak individually and then focus on more specific aspects of their service of their business model and maybe even just focus on specific trials that they're running so we can go even deeper into those particular topics so in terms of supporting the show it would mean a lot if you could subscribe uh, check out the website mindmanifestpodcast.com where you'll find really detailed show notes and as always please leave a review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts it really helps the channel so thanks again for listening and until next time no late to Mary.